But this morning I want to bring you a sermon entitled, What's Wrong with the Daughters of Heth? And it's kind of building on last Sunday's sermon just a hair. Now, uh, if you ever go into Google Images and you're looking for an image to use for a talk like this, there's not a lot of choices for the, the wives of Esau. <laughs> not too many of them. But I thought this was interesting is that Esau was supposed to be a guy who had red hair. They made it with this one. And then, uh, of course, it looks like Esau is dressed like uh, somebody from Afghanistan. It looks, looks very Muslim, very, very Muslim. I don't know if that's, an, uh, if that's how Esau really looked. This is just, just an illustration. Uh, that way, if you get tired looking at me, you can look up there <laughs> and uh, see something interesting. But I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn once again to Genesis 27. And I want to talk to you about what's wrong with the daughters of Heth. Chapter 27, verse 46. And Rebekah said to Isaac, I am weary of my life because of the daughters of Heth. If Jacob take a wife of the daughters of Heth, such as these, which are of the daughters of the land, what good shall my life do me? And we trust the Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his word. If you turn back a couple pages to chapter 26, verse 34, you'll see who she's talking about. Esau, her son, had married two women when he was 40 years of age. He married a girl named Judith, who was the daughter of Beri the Hittite. And then he married a girl named Bashamath, the daughter of Elon the Hittite, which were a grief of mind unto Isaac and to Rebekah. Now, the words that Rebecca speaks in chapter 27, verse 46, are the fallout from what's happened in chapter 27. Remember, Isaac is about to die, and he calls in his oldest son, Esau, his favorite son, and says, Esau, I want to give you the blessing before I die. Rebecca hears the story. She hears what Isaac is going to do, and so she goes out and Esau goes out to kill a deer, to cook it and bring it back for his dad. And Rebecca goes out and she gets Jacob and says, Jacob, look, your dad's going to give Esau the big blessing. I want you to dress up like Esau, go in there and pretend to be Esau so dad will bless you and not Esau. And that's what they did. They deceived Isaac. Told a lie, told a whole bunch of lies, really. And then when Esau comes back and finds out what they've done, that Jacob has stolen his blessing, Esau is very angry. This is, this is right up there with finding out that somebody stole your paycheck or stole your car or stole something very important to you. Maybe even stole your girlfriend. <laughs> I mean, it can make you a little bit crazy. Esau is angry with rage. And so he says, I'm going to kill Jacob. And Rebecca knows what she sees this happening. She knows what's going down. And so she decides she's going to, this is a good time to send Jacob away to find a wife. And she doesn't want Jacob to marry any of the local girls. He wants her to go back to her people where she's from and marry a girl from back home. And she says here in chapter 27, verse 46, she's complaining about the daughters of Heth. Now, when she says daughters of Heth, that simply means the local girls, the descendants of the Hittites, the Canaanites. It's kind of like, kind of like we would say, Oki, don't marry an Oki girl. When I, when I was a kid, we lived in Virginia, and we came to Virginia from Illinois. And in Virginia, they were still fighting the Civil War, right? I mean, <laughs> they were, it was still on like Donkey Kong in Virginia. And uh, there was a guy there who was from Maryland, 
and he pastored a church north of us, and he had married a girl from Virginia. And when he was dating her, he took her back home with him to Maryland to uh, meet his mom. And his mom said, what are you doing? Don't marry no southern girl. You need to marry a good, hard-working Yankee. Don't marry a southern girl. So those kind of things do exist in the world, those kind of feelings and attitudes. And what you have here in chapter 27, that last verse, is fallout. This is the fallout from Jacob and his mother's deception. Rebecca decides to send Jacob away for two reasons. She wants to send Jacob away to keep Esau from killing him because she loves her son. And listen, my friends, those of us who are parents, we know that our children don't always get along, right? Two, you have two sons, they're going to get into it. You have two daughters, they're going to get into it. You have five kids, ten kids, twenty kids, Lord help you. Your kids are going to get into it at some point. And you don't, want, you don't like the hostility. But think about having one of your children kill another child in anger. That would be such a heartbreaking thing to see. And so Rebecca says, I don't want to see that. So she's willing to send Jacob away to save his life. She doesn't want to see Esau kill Jacob. And then the second reason, she doesn't want Jacob to marry a Canaanite. He doesn't want her to marry a local girl. Remember, this is fallout from their deception. Fallout from their deceptions. You see, Rebecca and Jacob had made some choices. And the choices they had made had consequences. And this forced separation of Jacob from his mother is a part of the consequences of the choices that she has made. Choices have consequences. Do wrong choices have consequences? Certainly. But my friends, don't forget, even right choices have consequences. Even making the right choice, even doing the right thing can cause you some problems. Sometimes we think, well, if I just make all the right choices, I won't have any problems. (laughs) It's not true, is it? Doing the right thing sometimes will cause you problems, cause you difficulties. Remember in the Old Testament there, the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. The king of Babylon, he had made a big statue and set it up. And he said, you guys, when the horns play, you bow down and worship this image. And if you don't, you're dead meat. And the three Hebrew boys, they did not disobey the Lord. They obeyed God's command. And what happened to them because they did the right thing in obeying God? They got thrown in a fiery furnace. Their lives were hazarded because they made the right choice. In the same book of Daniel, there's a story about Daniel and the lion's den. The king said, nobody can pray to any God but me for 30 days. And what does Daniel do? Daniel keeps on praying to the one true and holy God. And what happens to Daniel? Does he get a gold star by his name? Does he get promoted? No, he gets thrown in the lion's den for doing the right thing. My friends, doing the right thing can sometimes get you in a bad spot. But it'll be because you did the right thing. In the New Testament, the Apostle Peter tells us, it's better to suffer for doing good than to suffer for doing evil. Would you rather be locked up for robbing a gas station or locked up for attending church? (laughs) I'm down with that. (laughs) But in general, we'd rather be locked up for doing something good, something noble, something noble. Esau, Esau, fallout. 
Now let's talk about Esau's wives. Rebecca, she says here, she says, man, I don't want Jacob to marry any girls from around here. What is the problem with these women? Esau is 40 years of age, chapter 26, verses 34 and 35. The Bible says Esau was 40 years old when he married these two women. And it tells us that these girls were both Hittites. Now, it's worth noting that he does not marry sisters. He does not marry sisters. His brother Jacob will wind up marrying sisters, and that will not be a good thing for Jacob. According to the scholars of the Old Testament, they say that these two girls that Esau married, Judith and and Bashamath, that these girls were the daughters of very rich men, kind of overlords or rulers of the region. And so Esau, he lives in Canaan. That's his home country. And he, he's, a, he's a prosperous man. He's the oldest son of a wealthy man. He has lots of things. And so he wants to marry some daughters who are going to, some girls who are going to help him in the future. He marries with care and concern. He marries these girls. But the Bible says that when he married them, that Isaac and Rebecca were not too happy about it. Now, I'm not, I haven't been in that situation yet. I have two kids who are old enough to get married, but neither one of them have been married. But here's the deal. Chances are, when all my kids get married, if they get married, they're not going to marry somebody who I pick out for them. <laughs> I feel like I could do a pretty good job of picking somebody out for them because I am so smart and wise and wonderful, right? I mean, I have knowledge they don't have. I know what to look for, right? I know you need one to marry. I know if you're a boy, you want to marry a girl. You got to marry a girl that has a four-wheel drive truck, a bass boat, a hunting lease. (laughs) A parent probably could do a pretty good job of picking out their kids' mates. But you know what? It's only going to be 50-50. If your kid picks out their own mates, it's going to be 50-50 for them too. Because the person, we, we may choose somebody for our kids to marry, but that person won't be the same person forever. They, people change. People change. People become different. Sometimes a parent could probably do a, a better job at picking out their mate for their kid. But it would just be a chance, just 50-50, just like when a kid picks their own mate. That said, we do need to consider why in the world Rebecca and Isaac are not happy about these girls. Nothing is said about them other than where they're from, their names, who their fathers are, and that they're local girls. Why would these girls be a burden to the mind of Isaac and Rebekah? And here are the reasons. First of all, there was a precedent that had been established. A precedent had been violated. When Grandpa Abraham wanted to get a wife for Isaac, he lived in the same part of the world. He lived in the same region. And he did not choose a local girl for his son Isaac, who was Rebekah. He could have chosen a woman from any of the nations around him. Abraham was a wealthy man. Abraham had his own private army. Abraham was like a king himself. And the kings of the region, they would have jumped at the chance to give one of their daughters to Abraham's son to have an alliance with him. Why didn't Abraham choose one of those girls from the region for Isaac? Well, there must have been something in the culture or in the character of these Canaanite people 
that Abraham did not want for his son. Some people will say that it was because they were of a different ethnicity, but that's not true because Abraham himself is a Syrian. He's of the same ethnicity that the Canaanites are. There's something deeper, something deeper, something more going on here, something in the character or the culture of these girls. Of course, the Bible tells us here that when Esau gets married, he's 40 years old when he gets married. That's the same age Isaac was when Isaac got married, 40 years of age. I've often thought about what my life would be like if I had waited until I was 40 to get married. That means I'd only be married now for three years. That I would have a three-year-old kid, maybe. And that tells me right away, that's a bad choice. Because <laughs> you don't have much energy <laughs> when you're 40 and you got a little kid running around the house. Esau, he's 40 years of age, and probably he felt like, hey, it's time to get married. And Dad's not getting me a wife. Dad, Mom's not helping me find somebody to marry. So he goes out, and he chooses these two girls, and he chooses pretty wisely. He chooses the daughters of powerful, influential men. He probably was impatient, waiting around for his dad to get him a wife. But he chose his own wife. He chose locally. He violated the family precedent of getting a girl from back home. The second negative thing here is he married two wives. Two wives. Now, I want you guys to listen to me carefully when I say these next three words. Polygamy is wrong. Polygamy is wrong. You wouldn't think that you'd have to say that in America, but you do. I know a man in Arkansas. I could say his name right out. I went to church with him. Fished with him once. Ate lunch with him more than once. That guy was married to a a wonderful Christian lady, but he was stepping out on her. Well, finally, you know, if you step out on your wife long enough, it's going to get found out. And guess what he did when he started time to get found out was he came to his Christian wife and said, Hey, dear, why can't I have you and her together? I'll be the husband of both of you. This is in Arkansas, friends. Now, don't don't make any Arkansas jokes. (laughs) But this is in Bible Belt, Arkansas, where every county is predominantly Baptist except one. That's Nevada County. Hundreds and thousands of Christian people. And here's a guy who says he wants to have, and he says, the Old Testament guys have polygamy, so I want to have polygamy. It's wrong. It's wrong. Polygamy is immoral. And we know it's the wrong way to do it. We know it's the wrong choice because when God gave Adam a woman to be his wife, how many women did God give to Adam? He gave gave him one. And he said, you two people become one. You may say, well, polygamists, they they had it in the Old Testament. Why can't we have it today? Well, here's the argument. I'll give you a counter argument for it, maybe. If two people become one... So Valerie and I, we become we're one person, one identity in Christ, one identity in the Lord. She's Mrs. Terry Basham, I'm Mr. Terry Basham. We're married. And if you bring in a third person to that, I'm no longer one with Valerie anymore. I'm half. Now I'm one with her, this other woman. 
It's not made to work out that way. You see it in the Old Testament, that's true. God regulates it in the Mosaic law, that is also true. But God also regulated slavery in the Mosaic law. And I don't think anybody's going to make an argument for bringing back slavery. Or to approve of that, are they? Certainly not. God did not give Adam two women. He gave him one woman. These two shall be one flesh. Polygamy ruins society. Read the Old Testament and you'll see that polygamous relationships disrupted society big time. It creates within a marriage, within a family, incredible pain inside families. You don't find women coming around to their husband and saying, you know, I want you to get, get, a, get a second wife. It's always the dude because there's lust involved. It's sensual. Read the scriptures. Read the Old Testament. Read it carefully and you'll see polygamy does nothing but make people's lives miserable. But take note of this. While God does indeed bless polygamists in scripture, he does it in spite of their polygamist sins. Just like he blesses you in spite of your sins. Just because you get a blessing doesn't mean God approves of what you're doing. Sins have consequences. He marries two wives. This is, this is not the first person to marry two wives in the Bible. The first one to marry two wives was Laban in, early on in the book of Genesis, and he was not a holy man either. He married two wives. And then the third thing is there's the culture of the Hittites. Rebecca and Isaac are believers. They are people of faith. They worship and serve the one true God. And as such, they have the law of God at the forefront of their minds. People who love God want to obey God and do the right things and worship God the right way. Rebecca and Isaac had the Holy Spirit inside of them, which means which meant, they had, which meant they had an internal desire to please God and to live in a way that honored Him. The Hittites were pagan. The Hittites were idolaters. They worshipped idols. And everywhere you see idolatry, you see incredible moral decay. In the Bible reading schedule that we give out periodically here at the church, we just finished up reading the most exciting book in the Old Testament, Leviticus. Leviticus, all the rules and regulations of Leviticus. And the reason we have the book of Leviticus, where God has to say in black and white that homosexuality is a sin, that incest is a sin, that having sexual relations with animals is a sin, he has to say it in plain language, is because the idolatrous cultures of Canaan they practiced all that stuff. And God had to let Israel know in writing, this is wrong. This is not the way I want it to be. You see, the pagan world had flipped on its head God's order for the world. The culture of the Hittites. So when Esau married these two girls who were Hittites, he brings into his life the influence of paganism. Have you ever seen a, a guy who's not really too into church? He doesn't go to church. He doesn't care about church. But he marries a church-going girl. Well, what, what happens a lot of times in that situation? Guess who starts going to church? Well, he does. She gets him to go into church. 
And then, you know, before long, sometimes he becomes a Christian. And then he gets baptized. And then her prayers are answered when he gets called to preach, right? <laughs> and he gets active in the church. And, and man, it just, it, it just changes their whole family direction. Well, here are these two girls. Esau marries two girls who are pagans. And the influence of paganism now is being brought into his life. You know what they say, if you go out and roll around in the dirt, the dirt don't get cleaner, you get dirtier, right? This corrosive influence now is coming into his family. Not only his family, but into his mom and dad's family. Think of it, here's Rebecca, she's, they're having dinner, Sunday dinner. I guess for them in the Jew, Jewish calendar, it would have been Saturday dinner. And they come over, and here come these girls, and they come in, and they bring in their little idols, their little, their little images, and they sit down, and they, make, and they do some kind of funky little pagan ceremony before they eat their food. And Rebecca's like, what are they doing? Just disrupting everything. She's, it's a grief to her mind, because now Rebecca, as a mother, all she can think about is Esau is under the influence of these women, and these women are idolaters, they're heathens. They're going to pull him away from the Lord. I want to say this to all you young people. This is the greatest burden of every Christian parent is that their kids marry somebody who's a heathen. When I say heathen, I mean we don't want our children to marry somebody who's not a Christian. Marry in the Lord. Find yourself a Christian man, a Christian woman, and marry him. Don't marry anybody else but a Christian. Set your sights high. There's more to life than just a beautiful face and strong arms. I know it doesn't seem like it, but having Christian faith is so important. You can be united in your service for the Lord. Find yourself a Christian and marry him. Seeing your kid marry a heathen, that's a grief to a parent's mind. It's a grief to a parent's heart. So listen, marriage can be a wonderful thing, can't it? If you're here and you're married and you think it can be wonderful, would you say amen? Wow. (laughs) Charles Spurgeon said marriage can be heaven on earth. He said it can be a slice of heaven on earth. And we all know that marriage can also be the other thing on earth, can't it? (laughs) And probably marriages a lot of times are a little bit of heaven and hell. Depending on, the, depending on the time of the month, right? Because when, and I don't mean that for that reason. I don't, I don't mean that. What I'm trying to, what I was trying to say is because, you know, money is the biggest stressor in marriage, right? Money's the biggest stressor. When, the, when, when you have, when the money is low, everybody gets irritable, right? When they, so money, that's what I mean about the money in the month, <laughs> not the other stuff. Lord, I'm going to edit that out of the sermon when I put it online. I'm going to clip clip that whole section out. No, I won't. Marriage can be heaven on earth. It can also be hell on earth. And even in Christian marriages, we have a Christian man and a Christian woman. Things don't always go that well. But then you have that that common connection of Jesus. You know, and when you love Jesus... 
And Jesus is important to you. Jesus says to be at peace with people. Jesus says to be forgiving one to another. Jesus says to love your neighbor as yourself. And my friends, you don't have any closer neighbor than your husband or your wife. That's a close neighbor. So be cautious when it comes time to marry someone. Try to marry a Christian. Don't marry someone who's not a Christian. And don't, and don't get suckered by people who pretend to be Christians either. Because there are those people who pretend to be Christians. But they're not really. If, if somebody says they're a Christian but they make their living robbing gas stations and <laughs> cooking meth in the basement, but I'm a Christian. I mean, they're not a Christian. You know, and you know from hanging out with them whether or, not, whether or not they're a Christian. You know from being around them. I'm not talking about they're so perfect and they pray all the time and always talk about the Bible. I'm talking about that general Christian attitude of benevolence and kindness. Marry somebody who's a Christian. Do your best to do that. Marriage can be, marriage can be incredibly hard, so try to make it a little easier by prayerfully and carefully making your choice. Sidebar. Something on the side, okay? Just to in-laws. Now, I've never been an in-law. But I've had in-laws. I got in-laws. To mothers-in-law and fathers-in-law, when your kid gets married, try to accept the person they marry as if they were your very own child and do not criticize them. Do not criticize them. Be a Christian to your sons-in-law and daughters-in-law. And if they become dangerous to your kid over time, because that can happen. I think about this. I think about you know, the girls getting married, and I think about a marrying. The other day I told Leslie, that we're talking about some, some person she knows, and I said, if a guy will smack you around when he's dating you, you can be sure he'll smack you around when he's married to you. And I said, if old dude ever smacks you around, just call me up. I'll come over and bring you back to my house, and I'll go back to your house, and I'll kill him. Because no, nobody, that, that's a big thing, it's a big worry, you know? But you know, if you're always riding, if you're always criticizing your in-law, your son-in-law, daughter-in-law behind their back, always yappity, yappity, yappity behind their back, when they become really dangerous and you need to say something, it's just more, more of your negativity. It's just more negativity. It's, it's, it's just filtered out. But if you have been being kind and courteous and accepting of that person, when it's time to make a big statement about their danger, what's well, taken more seriously? You see what I'm saying? It's much, you'll be heard much more clearly if you've been accepting and affirming and welcoming. It won't just be, well, they never liked them anyways, more a mom's mouth and dad's animus. That's the sidebar, okay? Back to the important thing here. Christians. We should try to find Christians to marry. Rebecca says, these girls, they're, they're a burden in my mind, and I want Jacob to go back and marry somebody else, Christians. We've got to remember this, friends. We're Christians. If you are here and you are a Christian, you're a Christian, you're in the world. And we don't, we don't take our moral standards. We don't, we don't live by the world's standards. We're Christians. We don't set up our own morality. We're supposed to go by what God says in His Word. And it's not what Grandma says in her Word, or Grandpa says in her Word, or Mom says in her Word, or Dad in 
his word, but it's what God said in his word. Go by what God says. You see, what Esau does when he, when he marries these two girls is he rejected the worldview that honored God and embraced a worldview that dishonored God. And he made it clear by his choices. We don't see Esau doing the things that a follower of God would do. You say, well, the same could be said of Isaac and Re- I mean, Rebekah and Jacob. That's true. No Christian's consistently perfect. Well, we find that Esau is consistently bad. That's what Hebrews says about him. Esau was a profane person. He's a fornicator. A man who's only concerned about himself. And my friends, your choices will tell us a lot about you. If you're constantly rejecting the counsel of the Lord, does that say Christian or does it say something else? Well, it says something else. Jesus said in Luke chapter 6, verse 46, here's what Jesus said. Why do you call me Lord, Lord? And, and the Greek term there is, uh, is kurios, which means master. So Jesus is saying, why do you call me master, master, but you don't do what I tell you? He says, if, if I'm your master, how come you don't obey me? You're calling me master, you're calling me boss, but you don't obey me? What's the deal with that? Your choices are important. You may remember... Actions speak louder than words, don't they? So, beloved Christian friend, I want to ask you a question. This is for the Christians. Are you committed to following Jesus yourself? Are you committed to following the Lord? You may say, well, I think so. I'm trying to be. Or you may be like me a lot of times when you answer a question like that, you're like, Man, I wish I was a committed follower of Jesus because I don't feel so committed. I don't feel like I'm doing it as good as I should be doing it. I don't feel like I'm really measuring up like I ought to. So if that's your answer, that means you're like me. You're one of those people who has failed him. You know, we fail at different levels, don't we? It'd be like if you said, well, I haven't been to church in a month. That's, that's a lot. That's, that's failing the Lord. But that's not as bad as saying, well, you know, I cheated on my wife and (laughs) robbed the gas station again. (laughs) There's different levels of failure, you know what I'm saying? But if you have failed the Lord so far, if you've messed up, I want you to know something. Today you can get back on the right path. Today, this very moment, this very hour, you can get back on the right path. You don't have to stay on the wrong path. You have to keep going down the wrong road. You may not think you can turn that thing around, but you can. You can turn it around. You may have been on the wrong path even for a long, long time, but it's not too late to correct. Maybe you've been in some really nasty sins. I want you to know something. His blood, his blood will cleanse you. you See, well, if I make a change now, I'll have to tell my friends at school. My friends at work, I have to tell my brother-in-law about it. If I change now, if I change course, I'm going to get laughed at, you know. I don't want to be a Bible called a Bible thumper. I don't want to be a Christian, you know. <laughs> I don't want to be a Christian. <laughs> I don't want to get that label, that label laid on me. I'm afraid of what other people might say. Proverbs 29, 25 says, The fear of man brings a snare. Being afraid of what people will think and say about you is a problem. 
Think about decisions people make all the time because of what they're, they're afraid of what people are going to say about them. There are people who won't, even, who won't wear you know, certain clothes or shoes because they don't want to be called a certain name or get classified as a certain kind of person. Fear of man. If you're a Christian, I want you to know that even if you've dropped the ball, you've caved into the fear of man, you've gotten yourself involved in all kinds of sins, I want you to know something. Jesus is a long-suffering Savior, and God's a kind and forgiving Father. And it's not the voice of God saying, well, you've gone too far, you can't come back. That's not the voice of God. That's the voice of Satan. Satan says you've gone too far, you can't come back. That's Satan. Not God. The Heavenly Father is saying, come back to me. The Heavenly Father, he's saying, just turn around. I'll be right there. I'll have you. I'm not done with you. I'll take you into the house. I'll take you in. I got a bed for you. I got clothes for you. The Heavenly Father loves you. And 1 John 1, 9 is in the Bible just for you. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Jesus will cleanse you. The Father will have you. Of course, you could be here and you're thinking in your mind, oh, I'm not a Christian at all. I don't care about it. Maybe you're not a Christian. I want to tell you how to become a Christian. Step one. You got to admit what you are. You have to admit, not that you're, it's not that just that you're imperfect. Everybody does that. You have to admit that you deserve to go to hell. That you deserve to go to hell. Romans 3.10 says, As is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned to come short of the glory of God. You have to admit that you are a sinner and that you deserve hell. You have to admit that about yourself. Now, I don't mind admitting it about other people. They deserve to go to hell. But admitting it about yourself is something very different. You're taking responsibility and ownership of what you have been doing about your life. And you, and you don't deserve hell not because you've just been doing bad stuff. Because we all do bad stuff. I'm a preacher and I do bad stuff. I've been a Christian since 1993. Some of you have been Christians here longer than I've been alive. I've only been alive for 27 years. <laughs> it's not because you haven't, you've done bad stuff. You're going to go to hell because you don't have any righteousness of your own. You don't have any goodness that will satisfy God's scrutiny. You don't measure up to God's standard. The sins that you commit, they are all symptoms of your real problem. Your real problem is you are unrighteous. So Romans 3, as is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. None righteous. You need righteousness. But you don't have any righteousness. You say, well, I'm going to get me some righteousness. You can't get you any righteousness. You can't go out there and, and work it up and, and, and find it somewhere. 
You can't go down here in Lawton and, and feed the hungry and clothe all the, clothe all the homeless and give out enough medicine. You can't get the coronavirus for other people so they'll miss it. I mean, you can't. You can't do it. You can't get any righteousness of yourself on your own. You have to receive righteousness from someone else, and that's Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5.21, He hath made him, Jesus, to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. In Christ, you can get some righteousness. From Jesus, you can get some righteousness. I don't mean some. I mean, from Jesus, you can get all the righteousness you need. He puts the righteousness upon you. So admit you deserve hell. Admit you're unrighteous and believe in Jesus. Believe that Jesus died for you. It does you no good to believe that Jesus died for the whole cotton-picking world. It does you no good to believe that Jesus died for everybody at all time and any place that does you no good. You've got to believe Jesus died for you. For you. There has to be something take place in your heart where you realize his blood was shed for me. Me. Terry. Me. And put your trust in the blood of Christ. Put your confidence in Jesus. Put your faith in Jesus. Put your faith in in Christ. Only by faith in Christ can you escape hell. And hell is exactly where you're going to go if you don't put your faith in Jesus. Intentionally. Intentionally. You're going to go out here in the parking lot. You're going to get in your car. And on the way to your car, you're going to reach in your pocket. You're going to pull out a key. You're probably going to hit a button and unlock the door on purpose. You're going to open the door. You're going to get in the car. You're going to stick that key in the ignition. And then what are you going to do? You're going to turn it or you're going to push a button. And you're going to, on purpose, start that car. And everything you're going to do, you're going to do it with intention. You're going to put it in reverse. You're going to back out without hitting Miss Josephine. Amen, Miss Josephine. <laughs> back out. <laughs> Somebody in the church backed into her car one time. And I don't want to talk about who it was. But you're going you're gonna to get in the car on purpose. You're going to back out. You're going to leave. It's all going to be intentionally. You have to put your faith in Jesus intentionally. On purpose. Put your trust in Jesus. Only by trusting in Jesus can you be saved and become a Christian. I wish you'd do it right now. I wish you put your faith in Jesus this second. But I, I know that maybe you're not ready for that. And so I pray the Lord will make you miserable in your sin until you call out to him for forgiveness. If you're here and you're a Christian, you're down in this sin and you're away from God in your heart. And nobody knows it but you and God. I hope God makes you miserable until you get right with him. God is a heavenly father. He loves us and he'll have us. He'll have us. He'll take us as his own. Follow the Lord. Well, let's pray together, and then we'll sing a hymn and be dismissed, all right? Father, we pray that you bless these words to our hearts in Christ's holy and precious and glorious name. Amen. All right, let's stand together and uh, see what song we're going to sing next. We're going to sing number 67, and then we'll be done. 67.
years I spent in the vanity and pride, <clears throat> caring not my Lord to speak with God. Let's just sing uh, one, two, and four, okay? One, two, and four, number six and seven. Here we go. Years I spent in a tea. 